Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Ashkan Kazarian. On today's show, we have a very special guest. We have the founder and CEO of DuckDuckGo, an internet privacy firm that is the most famous for their search engine that emphasizes the searcher's privacy. Uh, Gabriel Weinberg is joining us in our studio in DC. Thank you for coming. Hi, my pleasure. All right, so let's dive right in. Um, I am so excited to have someone who started an internet company and went from a startup to a real big company that's trying to do a lot of good in the world. So do you want to share uh, with our listeners, where, where did it all start? Was it like a garage somewhere in Pennsylvania? Basement. Basement. Okay. Okay. You got it. You got to play the stereotype. Yeah, exactly. No, yeah. Dusty basement, if you will. Uh, 2008, um, we've been operating kind of a node tracking search engine alternative for Google for the last decade. And then in the last couple of years, we realized that people really wanted, you know, kind of a more private solution in general on the web. And so we revitalized our mobile apps and browser extensions to offer a kind of a bundle of privacy tools that work seamlessly. And so it includes private search, but also tracker blocking, blocking trackers across the web and more encryption. So when you go to a website and make sure you use the encrypted version when it's available. All right, let's break that down for our listeners. Okay, so your browser, if I go to DuckDuckGo.com and I search my name, which I did, and actually the results were excellent. They were way better than some, some of the other engines. I, yes, I obviously Googled myself. What else did you think I was going to do? I use that word as a verb. <laughs> <laughs> no I search for myself. Um, but um, you're saying that you as a company don't get any information about me as a user, IP address, this and this, and so, what I looked yeah. up. When you uh, search on DuckDuckGo, that search result page that comes up, you're completely anonymous to us. So um, your computer automatically sends things over, like your IP address, and we just throw it away. Um, and the same thing with your location. So you could search for like a local bar or something like that and get results, but then we'll throw away the location that automatically got sent with your browser. So is it like a second that you have that information? There's no retention period? Right, so there's a interesting distinction of kind of logging things versus not logging things, and we, we just don't log anything. All right, so I guess as a surveillance lawyer, my question would be, if a government comes to you and says, like, let us tell us what is this Russian citizen Ash? looking for, you would just say, we don't have that information because you truly don't and can't even catch it in the transit. That's right. We've been in that situation and we just don't have any records that can help kind of law enforcement in this regard. So you're like, sorry, bro. Yeah. Um, okay. So that's the engine. You said you have a plugin. Yeah. So if you're on uh, Chrome or Firefox, you can install our browser extension. And if you're on mobile and iOS or Android, you can install our app, which is a browser. And they both add additional privacy features, the main ones being tracker blocking and encryption. Okay, so it encrypts websites I go to or like the, f the fact that I go to a website? So most websites, so, so the difference between encryption and non-encryption is when you go to a website, that HTTP in the front can have an S at the end, HTTPS, right. and that means it's encrypted. And so everything between you and the site will then not be able to be seen by your ISP or any other ISPs or people sharing your Wi-Fi. Um, so a lot of sites actually have two versions of the site. They have a non-encrypted version and an encrypted version, but they don't send you to the encrypted version automatically. Oh. 
Um, and so what we do is we crawl the web and we made a huge list of about 7 million sites that have this effect. And when we notice that you're about to go to a website, the unencrypted version, but there isn't really an encrypted version, we send you there automatically. And we also do this on the search results. So when most of the clicks off DuckDuckGo now go to encrypted pages because we changed all the HTTP links to HTTPS links. So what was the inspiration behind starting a privacy company when you were in the basement? <laughs> well, it's by, funny. By yeah. your own will. Yeah, as yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, originally, I was really motivated just to get better search results, to be honest. This was a time when Google Yahoo, actually... Search. Yeah, there were a lot of search engines. There were a lot of spam in search. It's hard to remember back 2007, but there were a lot of kind of issues with search. There wasn't a lot of instant answers like there are today. So I was originally motivated by just making a better search engine. And then once we launched... We started getting, I mean, it's just me. So I started getting questions about uh, search privacy. And I have a technology policy background. My graduate degree is in technology policy. From MIT. From MIT. So you're checking all the yeah. stereotype <laughs> yeah. boxes. Did you graduate or did you drop out? I graduated early. Does that count? <laughs> hey, guys, honestly, yeah. it gives me, as a daughter of two academics, it gives me so much anxiety when people drop out of school. I had that discussion with my parents, actually. they I was like, I'm going to drop out. And they were like no effing way basically and then it turned out i could graduate early so it was all all forgiven um but in any case uh i got these questions about search privacy and then i w did my own investigation i've been always interested in privacy but had never really looked at search privacy um, and then really discovered interesting facts that pushed us to not track which is that a you don't need to track people to make money in web search um, because all the money is basically made off of keyword advertising. So advertisers bid on the keyword. So say you search for car, you get a car ad because the advertiser bid on the car. But they don't need to know anything about you to do that. And so uh, you could make money without tracking people. And searches are like the most personal thing you type in on the internet because <laughs> oh, yeah. people type in there just like financial problems, medical, medical problems, problems. Like, <laughs> everything, right? Am I dying? <laughs> yeah. Romantic problems, um, all sorts of things. Um, and so they're, they're super personal. Um, and so it was just a better user experience not to do it. And then so we decided, I decided not to uh, track people. This was pre Snowden, pre all the last five years or so. And so it wasn't an immediately, still for several years, the attractor to DuckDuckGo. Like we were still just pitching ourselves on better search results. But eventually when people woke up to the privacy issues that exist, everyone's aware of now, um, it got more traction. You got a big spike uh, in users when the Snowden revelations came out, right? Yeah. Everyone was more aware of what's going on and they just, they freaked out. There was a big step function in 2013 and then another one in 2018. Um, after, with, after Cambridge Analytica <laughs> and everything that's followed. So um, before we go to more policy-focused uh, issues, you started talking a little bit about selling ads and how you make money. Can you t talk tell Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about the financial model as much as you can disclose? So they know, you know, what because you know it's great having a great but. It's an amazing thing having a great mission in place, but also, you know, you're a company and you're a private company and you should make money. There's nothing wrong with that. I think people sometimes forget that making money is okay in this country. <laughs> yeah, I mean, our, our, our proposition is even further than that. We think that privacy respecting companies can be very profitable and advertising on the internet is not necessarily a bad thing and can be done in a privacy respecting way. And so 
we like to make the distinction between contextual ads based on the context of the page. So in our case, just the search you type in, but you can imagine if you're on a publisher site or watching a video, an ad just based on the article you're reading, nothing to do with you. And then the other side of advertising is behavioral ads that are based on you, the person. Those are the ones that follow you around, they're the creepy ones, based on a big profile of you and all this data being collected. But contextual ads can be just as profitable. So after GDPR in Europe, for example, the New York Times Europe site changed their site and got rid of all the behavioral ads and switched to contextual ads that they sold themselves. And they reported an increase in revenue and not a decrease, which is interesting. But us, we just make all our money based on the same concept of contextual ads um, based on what you type in when you search, not on you as a person. All right, that's amazing. Now, you guys obviously put privacy at as a cornerstone of everything you do. And 2019, and I will keep saying this until our listeners all use this, is the Super Bowl for privacy lawyers and policy experts. So how are you guys involved? Um, today, they were recording is May 1st, and you just released uh, the Do Not Track Act of 2019 and you backing it. What is it about? Yes, thank you. Um, I agree with your Super Bowl comment. <laughs> um, so there, we're generally supporting strong, comprehensive privacy laws. Um, we've been a supporter of the Privacy for All Amendment, which for CCPA. But while all these things are getting figured out, we believe there is a simpler thing that we can do right now that's really an amazing legislative opportunity. And this is around do not track. So for people who don't know, in all the major browsers, there's a setting called do not track that you can go in and ask websites not to track you. Um, and we did research earlier in the year that found about 25% of Americans had the setting turned on, which is about 75 million Americans. Um, unfortunately, it does not do what people think it does. Um, people expect it to not track them after they turn it on. Um, in reality, it's a voluntary signal that sites do not have to respect and most all sites do not respect it. Um, and so there's a huge disconnect in consumer expectations. People want to be not be tracked. They turned on the setting not to be tracked, but they're being misled, thinking that it's having some real effect when it's not. Are they being misled by the search engines that they turn it on or by they turn on turn it on as a general kind of button for every website that I'm sending to every website that I visit? I say, do not track me, and some just disrespect my wishes. Yes, the Turner, it's a one and done setting. It's in all the browsers, so like Chrome, Firefox. Mm -hmm. And once you turn it on, and you can turn it off and on, but once you turn it on, it's sent into all the sites you visit. And when we surveyed Americans, we found that they expected the big tech companies to respect it. Um, and when it first launched, it was a self-regulatory effort originally back in 2010 to 2012, and some Big sites did try to respect it. But over time, since the standard really never developed and it was voluntary, it basically zero people respect it now. I mean, DuckDuckGo respects it because we don't track anyone. Anyway. Anyway. You were like, we don't yeah. even have to comply. Right, exactly. Did you have to comply with anything? Sorry, this is going to be a sidetrack. Did you have to comply with anything when GDPR came out or were you like, we're good? We were good, yeah. Wow. Um, we, had, we had to do some internal employee um, you know, employee data, um, make sure we were doing everything correctly. But as far as the products had to do nothing. All right. Um, so back to do not track. Back to do not track. So um, basically people think that 
they shouldn't be tracked when they turn this on and they're still being tracked. And the answer to this is to put some regulatory teeth behind the setting and to make clear what it means when you turn it on and to make clear that there will be penalties if a site does not respect the setting. Um, and that's what the Do Not Tract Act um, does. And we're putting it out as model legislation. We don't expect it to be picked up immediately in the way we put it out. Um, but we're hoping that people really take a look at it and either incorporate it into bills, general privacy bills that are maybe coming out, or pick it up independently because it is a simpler thing you can do right now. So do you want it to be passed? You said model legislation. Do you want it to be passed on a federal level or on a state level? I mean, honestly, we'd be happy to see it picked up anywhere. Um, but ideally, it would be a federal uh, level. Um, but even at a state level, it probably would have a decent amount of effect because you'd have to kind of figure out, you know, state by state, and people might just do it anyway. Yeah. This is our segue to California, because California, being as progressive and <laughs> above and ahead of everyone as they are, with their green juices and yoga, they passed the California Consumer Privacy Act that's going to go into effect on January 1st of 2020. And the problem that everyone has and why everyone is panicking around the country, well, not everyone, but a lot of people are panicking, okay, is that if you have to comply in California, that basically means you have, you're not going to have a separate system for California. You're, gonna, you're not, you either have to really shatter your whole, you know, way you operate and your business model into 50 different ways, because now if California really flies, other states are going to pass their privacy bills. And then what happens then? I don't know, the dark ages? I'm not sure what's <laughs> happening. Few of my colleagues have said that we should just wait and see and let the, to just watch the world burn. Um, I'm not a big supporter of that. I think there there's definitely conversation to be had about passing a privacy legislation on federal level. So we can have a very smooth, equal regulation of such an important thing as privacy all around the country. I don't want anyone to have different privacy rights in Montana versus California. I think that's not fair. So um, CCPA was passed. It was passed in a rush. Uh, we've done separate episodes about CCPA. I can link to them. But it was passed passed in a rush. There was a very interesting process. It was on a ballot. Then there was negotiations with state legislature, and they passed this bill. But it's so riddled with problems and issues and contradicting parts that there are currently 45 uh, bills uh, trying to amend it. Uh, you and you were leading this coalition of 24 tech companies backing CCPA amendment to make it stronger. And you called it Privacy for All Act of 2019. So tell us, what is Privacy for All? <laughs> yes. Um, so Privacy for All was drafted by a number of organizations, ACLU, EFF, Common Sense, um, Media being the leading ones, and introduced by Buffy Wicks, um, assembly member in California. And it attempted to um, put some cleanup to CCPA, but also make it stronger in a number of respects. The two biggest ones that we called out in our letter, and we got uh, companies to join us because we wanted to show that, like you said, for-profit companies, businesses that would be subject to the law are actually supportive of it. And I can explain why we're supportive of it. But the things that we were trying to get done with it, which I would love to be in a federal legislation as well, um, was CCPA, as it originally came out, really applied to opting out of selling data. 
And we wanted to expand that to also sharing data. So um, it would include companies like Facebook. Um, and then also, um, we want to introduce a private right of action so that um, individuals could defend their own privacy rights. But it's not just individuals, right? Yes. <laughs> so plaintiff lawyers can also defend their privacy rights and make some money. Yes. Um, and uh, so we we supported that. Unfortunately, didn't it die on the 24th? It died very quickly. Um, but these things are moving fast. So our hope is that some of the ideas are incorporated in right. some of these other right. many you amendments. Planted the seed. It's all. It's like all inception. Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, the the process is definitely messy, but we're hoping that some of these ideas will get picked up. I truly believe that a healthy disagreement and a debate is a what brings people to the middle ground, and B just opens up our eyes. And there's nothing wrong when someone changes their mind. Maybe you'll change your mind a little bit and be okay with sharing data. I don't know. Maybe that will never happen. Maybe I'll be okay with never sharing, with companies never sharing da- data ever again and like just chopping off the hand of that innovation. We'll, we'll see. We'll see. 2019 is definitely going to be an exciting year for all of us. Um, are there any other privacy, both privacy from, you know, consumer privacy and privacy from government surveillance initiatives or issues that you guys care about? Um, yeah, I mean, we care a lot about kind of algorithmic bias as well. And so we did another study on the filter bubble and uh, specifically as it relates to Google search results, but we're generally concerned with filter bubble issues. We'll link it in the show notes if anyone wants to read instead Thank of listening you. to this. <laughs> yeah, and it, it basically that's, um, you know, people in, in, with regards to search engines, people um, searching the kind of the same thing at the same time, but getting very different results based on their personal data profiles about them. And that can lead to all sorts of problems, um, including polarization. Um, and even in ways that you wouldn't necessarily expect, for example, if it's not even on an individual basis, but say a whole zip code is getting different results than the zip right. code next to it, you know, that zip code can become more polarized over time. This becomes more pernicious in a search engine setting because it goes back to like the do not track expectations. When people search, they kind of expect to get unbiased the results. Um, but if they're changing based on who you are and it's leaving out certain viewpoints, then, you know, people aren't as like, aware and like they're not going to react to it right away. My initial reaction is there's definitely bias in a lot of algorithms and there's bias in just humans who write the algorithms and the way the world operates. Um, at the same time, you know, there are a lot of conversation about, well, what is a protected group? What, who you can be biased against? Let's. So I'm a woman, I'm an immigrant, you know, I have a definite, you know, income bracket of someone who works for a think tank. So it's not that. So super high. Super high. Yeah. Like all of my law school loans are paid off. (laughs) Not really. Um, But when I search for something and I have my results out, you know, if I searched for a restaurant or if I searched for a store or a specific kind of transportation option, isn't sometimes it better that it's tailored to me, a woman who lives abroad and speaks multiple languages and has this kind of income and this kind of lifestyle. So there's some benefit for localization, absolutely. 
where it's tailoring based on kind of where you are. And you can actually do that without tracking. Um, what we're kind of objecting to is especially political results where there's changes based on your location, but have nothing to do with your actual location. So uh, if you search for, say, like climate change or pick your controversial topic. <laughs> Abortion. <laughs> Abortion, um, which is one we studied, actually, in the study. Okay. Um, or in, their, in our earlier study. Um, and then people are getting vastly different results based on just where they are in the country or who they are. Um, it's skewing people's ability to learn about the topic in kind of a, I, I realize bias is kind of a trigger word, so I'm trying to figure out another word, <laughs> but like in a, um, you know, neutral way um, so that people are getting the same type of viewpoints when right. they are especially doing very basic research about topics and, and candidates, for example. Right. There's been other research that showed that literally um, it was really interesting research that had people um, for about 20 minutes research candidates in an Australian election, even though they were Americans, so they didn't know anything about them, and then pick which candidate they agreed with, and they just changed the order of the search results, um, and they could dramatically change because you what click people on thought. the first because you click on the first link exactly. <laughs> people don't realize that because the first link is about 40 percent of the clicks, and then it, it halves every link. Um, and so, if you change the links around, you can completely control effectively people's opinions if they're in this research mode. So, who gets to decide what's neutral and who goes first? You? Yeah. So, this is an interesting question. I, this is a one layer down. So, I'm not necessarily arguing about the bias in a set of results, uh, which is a different argument. I'm arguing that it's inherently biasing people by giving each individual different results. And that's creating unintended consequences, especially when those are aggregated, especially like zip codes or voting districts. So if you're constantly giving one voting district more right-leaning things versus another voting district left-leaning things, you're more polarizing that district over time. Interesting. So the proposal in general says, as I understand, that the search results, no matter where you are, should be identical. Or that you could opt to get those, like at least okay. to have some transparency okay. around that, okay. to know like, what am, why am I seeing different results than you and have a, a way to opt out of that if possible. That like button, why am I seeing this? Yeah, or there, there actually used to be a Google a long time ago, a, you, could you could toggle off personalization. Um, and it got taken off like, I think like five or six years ago. And we've talked about this as a tool, but obviously you guys care about encryption as a way for us to protect our rights. And you have encryption, different encryption products that you offer. Um, do you weigh in on the encryption debate currently going on and that has been going on and it's not going away? <laughs> I, I, we absolutely do. We, we believe in strong encryption and, and having no exceptions to that. Um, I mean, it, it basically... I'm sure you've talked about it on the podcast before, but the argument is, you know, as soon as you build in a backdoor on anything, you're just weakening it, weakening it for everybody. It's like, it's that's the straightforward argument, and it's totally true. And we're going to link to our encryption podcast if people <laughs> want to find out more. And they can definitely research and look into your products and see if that's the encryption for them. I mean, there are a lot of different types of encryption products and ways of securing your information. And they're definitely for... I think this is actually something our users should, our listeners should figure out what kind of user they are, what kind of information they have, where do they go, 
Me, for example, I go back to Russia all the time and I have, you know, signal on my phone. And that's how I talk to people. Yes. <laughs> Just in case. I use signal too. I mean, yeah. So the, the product that we're that? offering is, is more seamless. So it just works on the web when you're browsing and just forces you to go to encrypted websites when they exist. So it doesn't break anything. Unlike, we definitely support like VPN products and things like that. But the problem with some of those products is it might break things. You know, you can't watch your Netflix or, or what have you. Um, I, I don't care. If, if, if you need to know what I'm doing when I watch my Netflix, I will give you that information. <laughs> this is all about trade-offs. I will personally trade in all of my personal, like where I am, what I'm doing, what I'm eating, just in, in exchange for Netflix, you know, their they're priorities and we'll have our own. <laughs> Right. And so, so what, what we've been trying to do is just make seamless products so you can just not think about it and just get more Just install it and forget it. All right. Well, that's awesome. Um, thank you for, so much for coming. To bridge the gap between Silicon Valley, even though I know you're in, you're in Pennsylvania and yep. you guys are all around. Yep. <laughs> but tech companies, I'm going to rope you in with everyone else. <laughs> all those Silicon Valley guys. Um, Silicon, bridge the gap between Silicon Valley and D.C., if um, anyone is interested in the work you do or your views or there's anything else you wanted to, people of DC to hear. And I, I mean, there are a lot of people outside of DC who listen to us and we know about you guys and we love you and we appreciate you too. But for all of our listeners, any final thoughts? Um, you can read most of this research and stuff on our blog, which is at spreadprivacy.com. And you can find me on Twitter at yegg, Y-E-G-G. Awesome. Well, Gabriel, thank you so much for joining. We hope you come back and tell us more about how you're saving the world one plug-in at a time. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can follow Tech Freedom on Spotify, Apple, iTunes, and any other poppy and any other major platform you listen to your podcasts on. Please leave us a review so others can find the show. And please let me know how we're doing because we're back and we're very excited for the 2019 podcast season. Thank you for listening. Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.